Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. To make the case for the Christian faith. His insights and his understanding uh, of the prevailing culture and the evidence and logical support for viewing all life's areas through a biblical worldview have been just an amazing help as he shared this past weekend and for uh, other settings where he shared with pastors and parents and educators. Sean is uh, an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics program at Biola University and uh, we're so blessed to have uh, him here with his uh, son Shane who's also with him and uh, we want to welcome him here to share from God's word. Would you please help me give a warm Center Street Church welcome to Sean McDowell. Thank you Pastor Wes. Bless you. I appreciate it. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be here with you in Calgary in spring, right? Did I miss the memo on that one? We're actually excited because we live in Southern California and we don't get snow. So my son was loving it until he took a snowball to the face and learned that's kind of a rite of passage if you're going to have a snowball fight. So we've been having a blast here the past three, four days. I want to start by asking you a question, and I'm pretty much sure that I know the answer. Have you ever had a tough conversation you knew you needed to have, but you just waited as long as possible, hoping the conversation would kind of just disappear? Right? We've all been there. Well, for me, this conversation was a couple decades ago, because I was at a point in my life having some serious doubts about what I believed. And I wanted to be up front and tell my dad that I wasn't quite sure that I bought all the things I'd learned growing up. Now, this is probably tough for any kid growing up in a Christian home. But my father, you might recognize the name Josh McDowell, has committed his life writing books, speaking, debating the past half century for the truth of Christianity. So I'm coming up to him in my lower 20s basically saying, yeah, dad, not sure I buy this. You can see how tough the conversation would be. Well, I'll save you the details. Obviously, I've come full circle and embraced the Christian faith. There probably wouldn't be preaching this morning. But the reason that I I bring this up is my father in his story actually grew up in a real broken home. There was abuse that was there, alcoholic father, actually set out to disprove Christianity in the 50s to show that it was false and write a book against it. Ended up becoming a Christian. His attention was, he, he got attention of Christianity through the evidence, but it was when he understood the love of God that drew him to become a believer. Wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, then chronicling all the evidence. Now, my father and I and our stories were very different how we approached God. But you know one interesting thing we had in common? Is we both began by considering the claims of Christ. Him from the outside trying to disprove it. Me from the inside asking myself, is this really valid? Does this make sense? Is this true? And can I bank my life on it? You might say, well, that's because you're in America. Of course, that's religion you're dealing with. Well, look, we have a global culture now where every conceivable religion is just one click away. This morning, I want to persuade you that a wise person on a spiritual quest would begin by considering the claims of Christianity. I want to give you four reasons for that. But before we do that, I actually teach at a university called Biola University. I teach grad students in theology. 
I also teach high school part-time. And a few years ago, I had taken a group of students. A friend of mine, Brett Kunkel, was taking these unique trips. He's speaking next year at the Be Ready conference. And we were up in Berserkley, California. You might know it as Berkeley, California. And we had about 25 or so high school students. And we actually set them out to go have conversations with students on campus. We invited some atheists and agnostics in to speak to our students. And I trained my students how to defend their faith with love and with kindness. Well, we had a chance to interact with this group that is under a different name now, but it was called SANE, S-A-N-E. And it stood for Students for a Non-Religious Ethos. So they're basically an atheist group that gets together to talk about how can we get rid of religion. Well, we had the chance, myself, to present to their group, and all my students were going to listen in, and then they're going to fire questions at me for an hour. I don't know about you, but that actually sounds like fun to me. But if you had that opportunity to speak to a group like that, what would you say? Would you try to argue that the Bible's true? Would you try to argue that Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus is God, that there's evidence for intelligent design? What I decided to do was instead of trying to convince them Christianity's true, I appealed to their sensibilities of considering themselves truth seekers, because we all like to consider ourselves truth seekers, right? Whether we are or not, we all consider ourselves that. And I said, here's what I'm going to do this evening. I just want to persuade you that if you're a thoughtful person on a spiritual quest, you would begin with the claims of Christianity. That's it. I'm not even here to tell you it's true. I just want to persuade you that a thoughtful person would begin with Christianity. And I gave him four reasons. So I'm going to walk you through that journey this morning. But you might be sitting there going, well, of course you think a thoughtful person should begin with Christianity. You're a Christian. You teach at Biola. But it's not just me that says, wait a minute, there's something about Christianity. So you might recognize the name Antony Flew. Now, why would you recognize this name? Because Antony Flew, for about five decades from the 1950s on, was the most widely read philosophical atheist in the world. He first presented his arguments and a thesis against the existence and intelligibility of God at what was called the Socratic Club, which included C.S. Lewis at Oxford in the 1950s. Well, he died in 2010. You know, in 2007, he wrote a book. You know what the title was? There is a God. Why the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. Now, the New York Times tried to marginalize it, and they had a review that said, he's old, he's just kind of lost his mind, don't listen to him anymore. He certainly had aged, but he was razor sharp with his intellect. Now, he didn't become a Christian as far as we know, but what he wrote, it kind of became a deist. He said this, he said, I think the Christian religion is the one religion that most clearly deserves to be honored and respected. There's nothing like the combination of a charismatic figure like Jesus and a first-class intellectual like St. Paul. If you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, this is the one to beat. And I think he's right. They might be sitting there going, okay, wait a minute, Sean. You must not have gotten the memo. This is a church. We believe in Jesus. Now, I'm going to assume that most of you here probably are Christians. If so, then my hope this morning is you'll get some tools, so to speak, that can help you more effectively and thoughtfully speak to non-believers in your life about what makes Christianity unique and compelling. 
If you're not a believer, because you got dragged here by a friend, or maybe you just came inside because it's so cold outside and found yourself in a church, I hope you'll just be open-minded and ask yourself, is there something unique about Christianity? Is this true? That's it. So let's take a look at four reasons why a thoughtful spiritual quest should begin with Christianity. And the first one ties to an early 2000 movie called The Body with Antonio Banderas. Now you've probably never heard of it because this is the kind of movie that played on an airplane and then went straight to midnight on TNT. (laughs) But the premise of this movie is fascinating. Antonio Banderas plays the role of a former Green Beret who becomes a Catholic priest. Well, shortly after this, in Jerusalem, in Palestine, the authorities discovered the body of somebody who was crucified with nails, put in a rich man's tomb, middle of the first century, and they found a coin from Pontius Pilate. So the church goes into an uproar because they think this might be the body of Okay, a decent number of you got it. (laughs) But realize, if someone asks a question in church, just say Jesus. (laughs) And you'll get it right half the time, right? My son's in the back coloring. He's five and three quarters, he'll tell you if you ask him. But my son is in junior kindergarten. And in junior kindergarten is when you learn to not like blurt out an answer and you raise your hand and the teacher calls on you. So the beginning of the year, the teacher says, Class, what's gray? Has a big bushy tail and climbs in trees. Raise your hand, I'll call on you. He, none of his classmates raised their hand. He, she thought, this is strange. Class, raise your hand, I'll call on you. What's gray? Has a big bushy tail and climbs in trees. Nothing. She said, put your hand up, class. You know the answer to this. What's gray? Has a big bushy tail and climbs in trees. Finally, my son Shane's friend, little Johnny in the back, sheepishly raised his hand. She says, yes, Johnny. He says, I'll say Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. Now in this movie, all the signs seem to indicate that they have discovered the body of Jesus. Since it's a Hollywood film, it kind of demonizes the church. And there's this huge uproar where the church is just trying to suppress this to maintain their power to be sure people realize it's not the body of Jesus. Now let's just stop for a second. Why does it matter if they found the body of Jesus? If you think about it, it wouldn't matter if they found the body of any other major religious figure throughout the history of the world. But if we found the body of Jesus, that would change everything. Why? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ is not risen, our faith is worthless. If they found the body of Jesus, you are to be pitied, Paul says, for what you believe. We're to be pitied. I said to these students, I said, look, the reason you should begin a spiritual quest looking at the claims of Christianity is because Christianity is actually testable. It's actually based on events in space, time, history. You can study archaeology, textual evidence, manuscript evidence. You can actually use your minds and see if these claims are true. You see, Christianity is unique In the sense that there is no other religion, no other religion that stakes its entire belief system to a single, testable, historical event. Friends, these things didn't happen in a corner. 
Jesus raised the dead. He healed people. He fulfilled prophecy. And the third day, he rose from the grave. And some of the greatest minds in history have put those claims to the test. That's why at the end of John, right after the climax, the Gospel of John, it says this. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of John is about signs that Jesus did that makes him credible and worthy of belief. Now let me just contrast this with some other religions. So I've also taken my son, this is about three or four years ago, we went into LA to go visit some Islamic centers, to go to some mosques and to meet with some Muslims, hear their journey, talk, listen to them, ask some questions. And one day, we must have had about 18, 20 students on this trip. Went to a city in Southern California called Garden Grove where there's a high population of Muslims and we just spread out to find people willing to have conversations about their faith. And my son was probably eight at that time, the older son, and we saw this restaurant that had Arabic letters all over it. Out front were th- three men just kind of talking the Arabic language. I said, there's probably a pretty good chance these guys are Muslims. So my son and I went walking up to him. I said, hey, my name is Sean McDowell. This is my son, Scotty. And we're just looking for people who are Muslims who'd be willing to have a spiritual conversation about their faith. By any chance, are any of you Muslims? And this guy, without hesitation, goes, oh, he goes, yes, don't talk to him. He's a bad Muslim. Talk to Ahmed. He's a good Muslim. I said, all right, let's talk to Ahmed. So we sat down. He was very warm, very gracious. In my experience, most people, in particular Muslims, are willing to have spiritual conversations. They're curious what you as a Christian think. So we sat down. I didn't start a debate with him. I just said, how did you become a Muslim? How do you practice your faith? What do you love most about your faith? What are common misunderstandings that people have about your faith? What do you and I have in common And where do you and I differ? He finally turned to me, asked me what I believe. But one thing he said, he said, I think there's a difference. Because you guys in Christianity talk about grace, but we don't. We talk about works. And then we also talked about the miracles and the evidence that it's true. He said, I look at the Quran, it's the word of God. I don't need evidence for this. It's beauty tells me that it's true. In fact, if you look in the Quran, do you know what the story essentially is? There's later traditions of Muhammad doing miracles. But actually in the Quran itself, the test for whether it's true or not is it's asked to the reader, if you don't think this is true, you produce a surah or a chapter as beautiful as this. That's the test, according to him, for Islam. Now that's a very different kind of test, isn't it? I'll give you another example. That's what we read if you look at the Quran. I also like to take my students and we go into BYU, into Salt Lake City, and begin to have conversations with Mormons about their faith, which is honestly really fun because we split up our students sometimes in groups of two to go knock on doors in Salt Lake City and ask people (laughs) if they have time to talk about Jesus. And even if they don't, there's kind of a look like, you know what, we knocked on your door come on in, right? <laughs> Many I've talked to have stories of evangelicals saying, oh, you're a cult, and like slam the door on them, which doesn't tend to build bridges. 
just in case you missed that memo. Well, my son and I again were there with a group of students and we were walking around and we knocked on the door and a man was there who was just graduating from the university, going to work in D.C. in law. And he said, I'm free in an hour. So he went away, came back and he invited us in. And again, it wasn't a debate. We just had a conversation about our differences and similarities. And at one point I said, how do you know that Mormonism is true? How do you know that it's true? And he gave the answer that any good Mormon will give you. He said, if you read Moroni 10.4, which is a passage in the Book of Mormon, it says essentially, if you read the Book of Mormon, you pray about it with a contrite spirit, God will show you by a certain feeling that it's true. And later that's described as a burning in the bosom. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, if you are studying science, you look at the facts and examine it. You don't rely upon feelings. If you're studying history, if you're studying geology, if you're studying psychology, you look at the facts and follow it. Why, when it comes to religion, the most important question, would you shift from the facts and evidence to feeling, especially when Jeremiah 79 says the heart is deceitful above all else, and Jesus said it's out of the heart that comes wickedness. Do you see how different the test is for Mormonism than the claims that Jesus made? Jesus didn't say trust a feeling. He didn't say try to write something as beautiful as this. He said, I am going to give a sign of the resurrection and you can investigate it. Love God with your minds and see if it's true. One last example you might find interesting is from Buddhism. Now, these words are attributed to Buddha in Houston Smith's World Religion book. He said this, By this you shall know a man is not my disciple, that he tries to work a miracle. Is that interesting? Much of Buddhism is empty your mind. Don't follow logic. That gets in the way. Jesus said, love your mind. Here's evidence. Follow truth. I said to these students, if you're on a spiritual quest, doesn't it make sense to begin with the religion you can actually test? I said, but let me give you a second one. I'll ask you guys this question. You tell me, if you're going to buy a car, what criteria is important in buying a car? I'm curious. Throw it out there. Reliability, fuel or mileage, good. Safety, color. Last time someone said speed. I'm not sure if I heard that correctly. Pretty sure it was a woman who said that. What else is important if you're going to buy a car? Price. Yeah, price is pretty important. Right? How much are you going to pay for this thing? So imagine you've narrowed down your search to three cars. One is $20,000. One is $10,000. And one is free. Which one should you at least... Which one should you at least rule out first? The one that is free. Why pay for something if you can get it for free? You realize of all world religions, it's actually only Christianity that says salvation is free. I said to these students, I said, if you're on a spiritual quest, doesn't it make sense like it does in buying a car to at least consider the religion in which salvation is free? Does that make sense? And with students, I could see him nodding like, free is good. 
mean, look what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. So no one may boast. Friends, salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. We didn't even ask for it. The question is, will we accept it? In the service last night, there was a Muslim. We had a wonderful conversation afterwards. He came up. We talked maybe 15, 20 minutes. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And one of the th- points that I made is, Sir, 1713 says, For we have made every man's actions cling to his neck, and we will bring forth to him on resurrection day a book, which he will find wide open. Now, ultimately in Islam, Allah can choose who he wants to bless with salvation. But to get Allah's favor, you are to follow the five pillars, and hopefully your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. In fact, many Muslims I've talked to, as soon as I say salvation is free, the next question they'll ask me, which tells me they at least understand it, is if it's free, then what's the point of doing good? Read Romans 6, if that's a question you want an answer to. But I just point out to these students, I say Christianity uniquely says salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. I'll never forget, there was this fellow sitting right in the front. He was pretty tall, maybe 6'3", 6'4", with his hair sticking up. He might have been 6'7", 6'8". And I mean his hair was sticking up because he looked like the typical college student who just rolled out of bed, even though it was about 7 or 8 at night. And you know what? I remember word for word what he said. And this is kind of a skeptical, the atheist group. He said, your arguments are so bad. If I didn't know any better, I would think that you were stoned on crack. Now, how would you respond with all your students watching to somebody who kind of critiques you this way? Well, you know, I, I know something the Bible says, and I try to live by this even though I know I fall short sometimes, is a gentle word turns away wrath. A gentle word turns away wrath. A soft-spoken word breaks a bone, the Proverbs say. You know, I actually know if someone speaks to me that way, that person has probably been spoken to a lot of times in their own life. For somebody to talk that way, they've clearly been hurt at some point. In fact, Rick Warren said, hurt people hurt people. So I just said to him, I said, you know, if I'm wrong... Point it out to me. I'm happy to change my views. Where do you find grace in other religions? Where did I make a mistake? And he said, look, I'm taking a class on Buddhism. And there's, a vers- there's, there's one, one kind of strain of Buddhism called Amida Buddhism. And on your journey, there's certain things you can't accomplish. And certain gods will come in and give you grace for your journey. And I looked at him, I said, you're absolutely right. I was taking a doctoral seminar on Buddhism, and we'd studied Amida Buddhism. And he's right. On your journey of salvation or enlightenment, there are things you can't accomplish. And along the way, the gods give you what you could call grace. I said, but here's the difference. There's a difference between a journey that's based on works where you get pockets of grace and an entire journey that is entirely based upon grace. Do you see the difference? It's a huge difference. When we were at Salt Lake City, my son and I got to speak to another man. Very interesting. We were knocking on doors and he invited us in. And we were just talking. I said, how how did you become 
a Mormon, tell me about your faith, tell me how you practice it, what do we have in common? Like just a wonderful conversation. And one of the things that surfaced is he said, if you want to reach the highest state within Mormonism, which is called exaltation, there are certain works you have to do in the temple to earn this. You have to do them. In fact, 2 Nephi 25, 23 says, for it is by grace you have been saved after all that you can do. That's very different than what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. In fact, the way that I think about grace, I'll never forget. When I was studying this about two decades ago, I was in about a decade and a half ago, I was in graduate school studying theology and philosophy. And I had one of those like three-hour night classes on biblical languages. And before every class, our teacher had us, there's maybe 15 or 20 of us in the class, do like a three to five minute devotional to just warm up the class. And there was a filmmaker who was doing the devotional one day and he kind of, remember he walks in the class and he starts walking up and down the aisle and he puts a $20 bill on each person's desk. Now this got my attention. This was an American $20 bill, not a, okay, I won't go there. <laughs> I won't go there, right? You just tune me out. Typical American, not gonna hear anything I have to say. Just messing with you. Right? That was mild compared to my president. <laughs> and I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. And now you're clapping. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so he goes walking up and down the aisle, puts $20 down like that guy in my attention. I'm a student at this point, a grad student. Walks to the front and he says, this $20 is a free gift for you. This is a free gift for you. And then he paused, he said, let me take a step outside of this. He said, I'm married, and I actually asked my wife before I decided to do this. I thought, that man is smart. If you're married, you're not married, and you're about to spend three or $400, talk to your spouse. Can I get an amen? Okay, good. I knew there were some Baptists here, at least. And then he says, here's the deal. He goes, this is a free gift for you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can do whatever you want to do with this $20. You can leave it sitting there. You can give it away. You can spend it. It's totally up to you, but realize something. Although it's free to you, it costs me something. It costs my family and I something. But here's why I did it. Because each one of you here are going to become ministers of the gospel. And I find so many Christians who think that salvation is based on their works and they preach a works-based gospel. It's worth it to me for you to understand that salvation is a free gift. All you have to do is be humble enough to accept it. Now go out and be agents of grace. And I sat there, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm in grad school and I think I got it on a deeper level. You see, religion is about man trying to get to God. Christianity is about God coming to man. That's the difference. Every other religion in the world, it has to begin with you purify your heart. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You do this, that, and something else to earn salvation. Christianity says you can't do it. You can't change your own heart. 
You don't have the power within yourself. All you can do is be humble enough to accept and God will come within you and transform you from the inside out. I have, I, I have a friend who, uh, before he became a believer, had a really interesting spiritual journey and he had a number of just fascinating dreams before becoming a Christian. And he had a dream where he was in a boat, fell in the water, and you ever had those dreams where you're like drowning, you kind of know you're in a dream, you're trying to wake up, but you can't, and it's like you're trapped for a moment? He said, I was in that kind of dream, I was drowning, and I remember looking to the shore and seeing kind of the typical Buddha image, and Buddha was saying, come to me. And he's sitting there going, I'm drowning, I can't. I woke up startled. And then shortly thereafter, this had another dream. On a boat, falls in the water. And he's drowning. He said, but now the image of was Jesus saying, I will come to you, extends his hand and reaches and helps him out of the state of drowning. Do you at least understand the difference? I said to these students, I said, look, Christianity says salvation is free. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. Doesn't it make sense to begin not only with a religion you can test, but second with the one in which salvation is free? I said, let me give you a third one. Here's the third reason why you should begin a spiritual quest with Christianity. Because you can live like Christianity is true. Don't you want a belief system that actually puts you in touch with reality? Now, I'm not saying Christians live better than other people. That is not my point. I'm not saying there's not hypocrites within Christianity. Of course there are. In fact, all of us are hypocrites and fall short in some way or another, right? But this is part of the Christian story that we can't do within our power and will not be able to live without sinning until we get to the perfected state. That's not really my point. My point is saying, don't you want a worldview that actually carves up the world at the joints meaning it enables you to believe that which corresponds to reality. So let me explain what I mean by this. In Buddhism, a human being is what's called an anatta, a no-soul. So the one truth you can bank on is that from one moment to the next, everything is changing, nothing is staying the same. So from the moment you came in here this morning, from the moment I started this message, from the moment I started this point, you were actually not metaphysically the same person. Everything has changed. Now the Christian worldview says you are body and your soul. Your body may change, your beliefs may change, but your soul, your immaterial self, has constant identity over time you don't metaphysically change as a person. One says you stay the same in terms of your identity. One says you're constantly changing. Now let me ask you a question. Which of these can we actually live out? Which of these matches the way we live? So let's take our criminal justice system for a minute. Do you realize that the criminal justice system is based upon the existence of the soul? Do you ever realize that? First off, it assumes you have free will and can make a choice to be held accountable for it. You can't have free will if you're just a physical body and have no soul. But second, can you imagine when somebody commits a crime, they're brought before a jury and all the evidence points towards that person. We got it on camera. We have 10 eyewitnesses. We have fingerprint evidence. If you were a no soul, what could your defense be? 
it wasn't me. Would anybody buy that? No. They'd say, it is you. Maybe you gain weight, maybe you lost weight. Maybe your beliefs change, maybe you feel sorry, but there is something in common, same identity before and today. Don't you want a belief system that actually matches up with the way that we live? I'll give you another example. Darwin made a very fascinating statement. In his autobiography, he said, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of man's mind, which is developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the conviction of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Now, what was Darwin saying? He's saying, according to his theory, all the diversity and complexity of life, including human beings and the human brain, is the result of a blind, purposeless material process. So your brain wasn't made to help you understand the world. It just resulted from this purposeless process that helps aid survival. So Darwin said, wait a minute. If my brain is just the result of this unguided purposeless process, how can I actually trust anything my brain tells me is true? Do you realize the conundrum that he found himself in? So think about it. If your theory undermines any basis you have for having confidence that your theory is true, you might want to consider getting a different theory. Now, here would be the problem. And by Darwin, I'm talking about the naturalistic, totally unguided kind of evolution. You can't turn around and start saying, well, here's reasons why the brain works. Why can't you do that? Because if the question is, can we trust the brain, you can't assume the brain is reliable to then give reasons to prove that it's reliable because that's the very thing in question. In fact, C.S. Lewis hit on this. He said, if the value of reasoning is in doubt, you cannot try to establish it by reasoning. Right? Now, in the Christian worldview, yes, we've been affected by sin, but God is rational. We've been made in his image. And the world is a logical cosmos, not a chaos. That's why science did grow and develop in a culture shaped by the Christian worldview. Now, we were sitting there. I'll never forget a student asked a question as soon as I was done with this. And afterwards, that student had contacted us and said, you know what? I think maybe I believe in God, which was very interesting. Well, he said this to me. He said, quote, he said, wait a minute. You're saying we can't trust the brain? He's saying, he actually says we can't trust the brain. In fact, science proves we can't trust the brain. He said, quote, scientific studies show that the brain is not reliable. And I paused for a minute. I said, okay, wait a minute. You're telling me that science shows we can't trust the brain. Doesn't science itself assume that the brain is reliable to even operate and tell us how the world works? So if I understand correctly, you're telling me that science, which relies upon the reliability of the brain, tells us we can't trust the reliability of the brain? Do you see the problem here? Now, I don't always have those kind of quick, good responses. Typically, I think of them after a conversation, right? But that time I had it, and he goes, good point. <laughs> Number one, a spiritual quest began with Christianity. Because, number one, it's testable. Number two, salvation is free. Number three, you can live like it's true. And the fourth point I gave them 
was this, because Christianity has Jesus at the center. And the moment I said that, you could see their eyes. They felt so betrayed, like, oh, preacher boy, we should have seen this coming. I said, I'm actually not making the point you think I'm making. I said, Let, just allow me to explain. Bear with me. We're just asking why you should begin a spiritual quest with Christianity. I said, there might be a temptation to say, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, whatever other religious figure you can think of, to put Jesus in that category. I said, but you realize Jesus is the one religious figure that doesn't belong in that category? He's the one religious figure that transcends religious categories. What I mean by this is Jesus is the one religious figure that everybody wants to claim for themselves. Have you noticed that? Nobody outside of Islam claims Muhammad. Nobody outside of Buddhism claims Buddha, except New Age, which is really just reincarnated Buddhism, pun intended. Nobody outside of Hinduism claims Krishna, but everybody wants Jesus. In fact, even in the Quran, it says Jesus is a virgin-born, sinless, miracle-working prophet. Many Buddhists will say Jesus was an enlightened one. Many Hindus will say Jesus is an avatar. New age, Jesus is divine guru. And this is what is taught at the largest church in, in America, at least. The church of Oprah. <laughs> Jesus is on our side. He was a spiritual guru. Even many Jews will say Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he was wrong about that Messiah thing. Friends, Jesus transcends religious figures. And what's amazing about this, as far as we know, he had little money. He had no political power. He had no military position. He wrote no books, humanly speaking. Yes, all the scriptures are inspired by Jesus, but didn't author them, humanly speaking, like others did. He traveled less than 200 miles from his home in his entire life. His public ministry was somewhere between two and three years. And he died with almost no possessions that we're aware of. And yet the stories he told, the teachings he gave, the life he lived has turned the world upside down, arguably more than anybody who's ever lived, certainly more than any other spiritual figure who's ever lived. You know, it's amazing. A lot of people are okay talking about God in the abstract, when it turns to Jesus, there's something that can make people uncomfortable because there's power in the name of Jesus, isn't there? Nobody walked away from Jesus the same. Either they called him a liar, said he was demon-possessed, called him a false prophet, a drunkard, spit at him, crucified him, cursed him, or they fell at his feet and called him Lord. Nobody walked away unaffected by Jesus. And yet Jesus said the single most important question you can answer is, who do you say that I am? That's the question I asked to those students. I said, nobody's influenced the world more than Jesus. If you're a real, thoughtful truth seeker on a spiritual quest, friends, you can test Christianity. Examine it. Salvation is free. It gives you a worldview that puts you in touch with reality and it has Jesus at the center. You owe it to yourself to consider 
the claims of Christ. That's it. That's it. If you're a spiritual seeker and you're here, there's a book you need to read. It's called the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John lays out, and I just ask you to read it. Just read the Gospel of John. Find 45 minutes, an hour, maybe an hour plus. And say, who is this person, Jesus? What's his character like? Why were people drawn to him? Why did his teachings and character turn the world upside down? Start with the scriptures in the Gospel of John and just ask yourself, could this account be true? If you say, all right, this is captivating, but I don't know if it's true. My father wrote a book called Evidence Demands a Verdict in 1972, trying to disprove Christianity, show it was false. Ended up becoming convinced it was true, wrote that in 1972. This past fall, we actually got three dozen grad students, 12 leading scholars in the world, updated it. It's like 800 pages of some of the most compelling evidence that Jesus claimed to be God, fulfilled prophecy, rose from the grave. If you're a Christian, you owe it to your kids and your grandkids and yourself to know why you believe what you believe. If you're non-Christian, start by reading the Gospel of John and I hope you will be open to the evidence. Your bookstore has been gracious enough to carry it. It's in the back. Thank you for having me and my son here. I was saying last night with a friend, I said, you know what? I haven't been anywhere in the world honestly, that I have felt more welcome and been shown hospitality than here in Canada. Hands down. Thanks for having us. God bless. Bless you, Sean. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Sean, for sharing with us this morning, challenging us this morning. Um, My guess is we're all here because we are seekers after truth. And um, if we know Jesus, if we follow Jesus, then uh, we need to consider what Sean has shared with us in terms of what that obedience to truth means for us in our everyday lives. And if you're here, you're not sure about Jesus, as Sean says, the book of John's a great place to start. But maybe you'd like to speak with someone following the service, and our prayer partners will be here. We'd love to chat with you. As I mentioned earlier, the, the pastors and ministry leaders at the Connect tables are there. Um, but continue to seek after truth. And uh, I believe that God will reveal himself to you in a marvelous way. Well, I don't know what God's been saying to you, uh, but uh, you know in your heart and you're sensing in your heart. So I'm going to invite you to stand together and let's, let's uh, consider and open our hearts and our minds and let's open our hands as Pastor Henry has us do um, every week um, to let Jesus speak to us. And as we listen, let's decide in our hearts what we're going to do about what God is prompting us to do as we move forward into his future. Loving Father, we do come to you knowing that you alone have the words of truth. We know that our our Savior, your Son, said he is the truth, the way and the life. And so, Father, we come to you through him and we ask that you would guide and direct us into what it means to truly follow you, to follow the truth, to be obedient to the truth, to work it out in our everyday lives as we we, um, live out and share the wonderful claims of the gospel with everyone around about us. Father, I just pray for those who may be seeking today. You know what's on their hearts. You um, You know what questions they have. 
Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, by the wonderful uh, company of um, committed godly people, help them to be able to see your truth. Father, we commit this, uh, the rest of this day and this week to you, and we thank you for being with us here. And now, let the words of Christ in all their richness live in your hearts and make you wise. Use his words to teach and counsel each other. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus, all the while giving thanks to him through God the Father. Amen. And bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.